Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Hello and welcome to show number 371 in our weekly series from Engage for Success Radio. Engage for Success is a not-for-profit movement and we're the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement. We're raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country and our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups, developing research, publishing case studies, and shining a light on great practice. Do visit us at engageforsuccess.org to learn more and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'm Jo Moffat. I'm one of the regular hosts of Engage for Success Radio, and I'm also Managing Director and Founder of Woodread. Uh, Woodread's a specialist advertising agency, and we work with our clients to help them use their brands to engage their people, and create high-performing workplace cultures. And my special guest today is Baljit Kaur. Baljit is a diversity and inclusion specialist with Innate Consultancy, and she's got extensive experience in delivering diversity and inclusion solutions on a multi-sector basis. She helps companies design a diverse workforce and inclusive cultures, achieving excellence in employee attraction, engagement, and retention. Uh, Baljit's delivered a range of innovative training and consultancy interventions with particular emphasis on dignity at work, unconscious bias, inclusive leadership, race inclusion and talent management. And for the next half an hour, we're going to be talking about how the diversity and inclusion agenda has evolved and what learning points we can all take from this. So welcome to Engage for Success Radio, Baljit. Hi, Joe. Thank you for uh, having me. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here and obviously a very important topic um, for us to be talking about today. But before we get into that, can you just give us and our listeners a, a little bit of an overview of your own professional background? Yes, absolutely. So I've been working in the area of equality, diversity and inclusion for, I would say, the last 15 years or so mm-hmm. uh, across all sectors, public and private. So, uh, you know, we've worked in engineering, construction, financial services, um, the energy sector, education, sporting you know, institutions. Mm-hmm. So a range of organisations that uh, we've engaged with. And um, as specialists in the diversity and inclusion area, we nuance our work to each sector. And obviously within each sector, there are a number of organisations with differing practices and differing cultures. So we nuance everything that we do to the various sectors that we work and the various organisations that we work with. So, yes, I've been doing this for about 15 years and basically developed the consultancy so that we almost have three arms, really. You know, one is very much around conducting cultural audits and audits of policies and procedures. And Mm -hmm. then the bulk of our work is in delivering learning and development solutions across the whole, um, you know, gambit of um, a uh, whole gamut of uh, diversity and inclusion areas. Right. And then we um, provide bespoke consultancies. So that could be anything from developing governance frameworks or policies or strategies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite important to think of diversity and inclusion in, in the round like that, because organisations need to adopt that whole organisation approach and a holistic approach to diversity and inclusion. And some of the listeners and yourself, Joe, may have heard of some of the backlash that training is getting. So there is this 
talk about unconscious bias training not being effective. It doesn't work. And I don't think it's a training that's ineffective or is problematic. What it is, is that uh, we don't necessarily have this holistic approach to embedding diversity and inclusion. Right, we have right. to have this, uh, you know, we have to tackle all of these aspects, really, so that yes. this is part of a wider diversity and inclusion program and not just a piecemeal activity. Yes, and I guess that I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that in a bit more detail in terms of how the agenda's evolved. And if, if things are piecemeal, they're kind of a bit of a potentially can be seen as tick box and they don't, they're, they're sort of people perhaps paying lip service to things uh, rather than seeing things, in, as you say, look, taking a holistic approach, Absolutely. Um, I guess. So, so our topic today is going to be talking about how the diversity and inclusion agenda has evolved and, and what we can learn from that. And I guess... Um, as with so many other things, um, you know, the last eight or nine months of our working lives has, has gone on at a heck of a pace, hasn't it? So let's start. Could we, could we start there and, and talk about what your take is on the impact of COVID-19 on the diversity and inclusion agenda specifically, but perhaps also on workplaces particularly, because we've had COVID-19 and obviously along the way, we've also had a significant um impact of Black Lives Matter haven't we as well so um what's your what's your view of what's been going on for the last eight or nine months Baljit? Yeah so I think it's just as you you put it there Joe, in that the speed and magnitude of change over the recent months has just been incredulous really and I think COVID-19 in itself um, has had a huge impact and there has been some detrimental and disproportionate impact on certain cohorts of society, mm-hmm. which we do need to take into account and which does have implications for our workplaces. So when we think about, you know, women in particular, we know from a health and well-being and a financial point of view, um, you know, there is a disproportionate impact there. Women taking on the greater share of childcare and carer responsibilities, which means under these sort of furlough arrangements or whatever that differing workplace arrangement is, there has been a disproportionate impact on women's mental health and well-being. They are at risk of sort of having more reduced hours, risk of being furloughed, certainly losing jobs. There's lots of research in this area to say that, you know, women are in that high risk category in terms of job losses. And I think all of that just exacerbates the inequality that we already see in recruitment, retention and engagement of women across the board. So I always think it's really interesting to sort of look at some of the statistics, really, when we think Mm. about our organisations and we look at the FTSE 100 firms, um, you know, there are more chief execs named David, 14 Mm. to be precise, and Mm. even more named John, 17. And yet uh, there are women, um, the chief execs uh, that are women in those FTSE 100 are only seven. So those disparities that exist in our organisations really stem from that societal inequality that exists. And COVID-19 has just exacerbated that. Mm. Mm. Yes, it's made everything, it's it's put the microscope on so many things, hasn't it? And just, just sort of ramped it up on steroids almost. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And the other area which we obviously are very familiar with is the impact on black and Asian people in particular, Mm -hmm. again, disproportionately effective uh, in terms of, you know, the lower paid jobs and certainly some of the key worker positions we've spoken about a lot. You know, there's a high impact there in terms of the prevalence of black and Asian people occupying those roles. We know that in terms of our health service delivery, there is systemic and structural inequality within that. So lots of reasons as to why that particular group of people 
people are also experiencing uh, mm. a negative experience really as a result of um, COVID-19. Mm. And then, as you say, Joe, we've had Black Lives Matter, which again, you know, there has been an impact in terms of, you know, people, um, black individuals in particular, who have been affected. Uh, and obviously, everybody's experience is differently. The impact on individuals will be very different across the board. But we do know there are a lot of our black colleagues in organisations who are experiencing, um, you know, trauma perhaps mm. the result of this you know that feeling of um, not being as valued and as respected in society just as a result of the color of the skin yes. so all of these issues you know do come to have a bearing in terms of organizational practices mm. uh, and how we actually create those sense of belonging and reduce that sense of otherness really that uh, COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and, and also the current sort of Brexit arrangements really which have been you know going on for a number of years but mm. all of that um, does mean that for some people there is that greater sense of otherness that is occurring in organisations. Yeah so and I guess with regards to the Black Lives Matter um, situation organisations have to be very careful how they how they, they have to think carefully about how they will respond to that because they they need to respond to, to try and make sure that people don't feel excluded and do feel safe and, and inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, but they need to do that in a genuine way, don't they, rather than simply whacking a hashtag Black Lives Matter on a bit of communication and thinking that's job done. I mean, it comes back to your point at the very beginning about thinking about these things holistically, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely yeah so you know what we have seen is there has been um, various allegations of what we call performative allyship or we call corporate hypocrisy where people have got these statements and images and you know the black square etc but then when you kind of um, dig deeper into those organizations there is not much in the way of tangible practice and action that's Mm. taking place Mm. so yes absolutely the two need to be married and uh, married up and also people are a lot more savvy about these issues you know people are asking the right questions to understand whether this is actually a genuine business priority for you or is it more about your branding and reputation so what are your reasons for actually speaking out on on issues such as black lives matters yes yes it's interesting i mean at Dirt engage for success we have uh what we call the four enablers of the of an engaged workforce and they they're part of the original report from which Engage for Success developed. And the fourth enabler is around organisational integrity. And, and it's about saying that the, the values on the wall are demonstrated and supported by the behaviours of everyone throughout the organisation. You know, I, I, I look at that from the most senior person in the organisation to the newest recruit. The values are not simply words on a poster stuck on a wall, but they are supported and demonstrated every day by the way people interact with each other and the decisions that they take and the policies that they adopt. And um, we, we talk and engage with success about they're not looking for there not to be a say-do gap, you know, between what we say we are and what we actually are or what we say we'll do and what we'll actually do. And this is a, this is a perfect example of that. It, it strikes me that, you know, it's very easy um, and, and foolish, of course, to pay pay lip service, and you need to really think about what you mean by by this, and um, adopt appropriate actions and policies accordingly. Mm, absolutely, yes. it's a, it's interesting what you were saying about the, the the impact on different types of people. You talked about working working women or women working women women with caring responsibilities, and and also um, uh, different 
different racial groups, black black uh, workforces and so on in, in, in different jobs, working in frontline jobs, working in the NHS or working in roles where it's less easy to just say, I'm going to go and work from home. And, and there's quite a distinction, I think, isn't there? It, it can be some distinctions and, and barriers being developed between the kind of role you, you perform and the fact that there are certain types of people in our UK workforce who can very easily comfortably go and work from home and it not really have any great impact. And actually people say, oh, this is actually quite nice. I'm quite liking this, thank you very much. Um, and then you've got, as you say, you've got women with caring responsibilities juggling and juggling and juggling and perhaps becoming invisible um, working from home, not so obvious, not so apparent. And then you've also got a whole other tranche of people working in dangerous frontline roles um, who, are, who are experiencing a, a different impact. So there's, there's lots of fragmentation going on, all of which can be detrimental to our diversity and inclusion agenda, I guess. Mm. And yeah, detrimental. And the whole, the whole sort of ethos behind inclusion is ensuring that we do take into account the needs and requirements of individual people Hmm. so diversity might be uh, about you know those aspects of identity sort of that group phenomena but inclusion is very much about that individual experience and Hmm. and, you know listening to you know you just outline how it impacts people differently in terms of these working from home arrangements it's really just thinking through what is that more balanced approach that organizations need to take going forward so these individual needs and requirements are met as best yes. they can they're not detrimental to the organization achieving its uh, you know overall performance mm-hmm. uh, but there is so much that can be done there and I think you know COVID-19 has certainly brought that to the fore in yes. that we need to be more agile in the way that we're thinking and operating as businesses and you know COVID-19 has proven that things that you know perhaps we presented barriers uh, for previously there is no genuine reason why those things you know can't be worked out uh, on a practical basis for each and every every individual Mm. so um, treating people treating people as individuals is absolutely fundamental isn't it to so much um, it brought either to the diversity and inclusion agenda, but it, but also just to, to sort of broader engagement of your of your people. Um, my my co-host on this show, the other Joe Joe Dodds, it's one of her favourite things. She bangs on about it all the time, um, and I don't mean that detrimentally. You know, it's something she's absolutely passionate about: the importance of treating people as individuals and recognising their different needs and their different circumstances and their personal you know, the personal circumstances that impact upon the extent to which they can and do, you know, can do their work, really. So absolutely. Yeah. And it's also respecting that organisations may need to have more of a balanced approach. So not everybody can work remotely all of the time, perhaps. Mm. But as long as there are genuine business, uh, you know, um, uh, legitimate requirements there, as opposed to what I think has been happening previously in that it's just been, you know, easy to say no, really. Um, So I think that individual approach and certainly what COVID has also brought out is the whole intersectional nature of disadvantage. So Mm -hmm. how multiple aspects of identity do create those unique experiences for individuals. And for some people, you know, those multiple layers uh, don't actually create positive experiences so intersectionality has really been borne out by this whole uh you know recent few months really Mm. so what things are compounded people's people's disadvantage can be compounded by a number of different things working at the same time same time yeah so the multiple Mm. aspects interesting okay good well we've 
yes, very important um, uh, to, to kick off with that. But but I'd like to just take us back um, 10 years, if I may, really, because it's been 10 years since the Equality Act came into force in 2010. Um, and I wonder, has it been a good 10 years? Has it have we come a long way? Uh, you know, what if you were to if I was to have been talking to you 10 years ago, your ambitions for where we might be by 2020? Do you think they've been reached or are we falling short? What's your take on that, Baljit? Um, I'd say um, I'd probably uh, be, be sitting in the middle there, Joe. Uh, in that, um, yes, it has been 10 years. And I think this piece of legislation was hugely instrumental in terms of, you know, uh, progressing the whole equality, diversity and inclusion agenda. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, And incidentally, it's also been 25 years since the Disability Discrimination Act has been in place. So this year was quite monumental in in those terms. And I think, yes, we have made progress over the 10 years, um, but perhaps not the progress that I may have envisaged in response to your question there 10 years ago. So it came about, I think we expected a bit more of uh, of a progress, really, over 10 years. I think the debate has moved on. So we've certainly started talking, um, you know, uh, in a more progressive way around diversity and inclusion. So we moved away from some of that compliance talk we used to have, just mm-hmm. comply with legislation. Um, mm-hmm. And really, we have moved more further forward. But we are still in the space of, for a lot of organisations, this is very much in the PR and the marketing stage, as opposed to it being woven into the mechanics of the organisation. Right. So yes. the debate has moved on, but... I think progress is lacking. It's not mm-hmm. where we would have desired to have been. And momentum has been quite leisurely in my, in my you know, uh, point of view, from my it point It hasn't become as systemic and as embedded and simply part of the way that a properly organised and well-run organisation does its business. It's still perhaps a little on the periphery sometimes yeah, and seen as the part of the CSR agenda almost. Yeah, a little bit of an add-on, really. Mm. You know? And also mm. this whole issue about we've got to see the commercial gains before we sign up to this and invest resources in it. And mm. I think that in itself is quite insulting in terms of you need a business case to include and involve people and ensure that they're maximising their potential. For yes. me, it's a bit nonsensical yeah. uh, when we talk about the business case around some of these issues. And if I... profit is the lever that is driving your diversity and inclusion strategy, I would even suggest that it's flawed from the outset. I think that's very, very valid point. And it almost, almost, you know, it's almost a, runs in parallel, although yours is more, even more important that, you know, we hear this about employee engagement generally, you know, where's the business case? Where's the business case for treating your people properly? Mm. I'm not quite sure you should have one, you know, you, you surely that's just the way things should be done. And even more so with the, with the topic we're talking about now, yeah. uh, for sure. So, so how do, how do you, um, make a, a, a diversity and inclusion agenda um, a, a, a something that is systemic across the business to becomes more than just an add-on and, and you really get widespread buy-in and, and buy-in from the senior team which obviously is crucial with these sorts of things I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, I think it's um, it's that point that we've just uh, alluded to there in that in order to make this systemic, what is essential in my mind, and sometimes we make excuses for this, but in my mind, this has got to start at the top. There's mm-hmm. no other place for it to start. Yes, you can start it further down, you know, the hierarchy, have lateral moves, etc. But, you know, it has to start at the top uh, and not just paying lip service 
because people will see through that. What we need is a genuine appetite for change at those senior levels, at that board level. Mm-hmm. When you get both of these things, that genuine appetite for change, and it's starting at the top, then it, that's when you see change happen in a sustainable way. Because when it comes in laterally, when it comes from lower down in terms of, you know, the hierarchical chain, then yes, you do get some change, but it's not change in a sustainable way. It's not change that picks up traction. And it's not certainly something that everybody in the organization will consider as to what matters around here. So really, we need to see some transform transformational leadership in this area, you know, in the way that we talk about diversity and inclusion. So it's not just about a business case. It's not all about the uh, commercial gains. It's not diversity and inclusion is almost pitched as a problem sometimes, you know, as opposed to a business priority like you would like health and safety. So it really needs to be grounded in the well-being agenda and focus on, you know, what people have. Yes, different to each other, but also in common. Mm. So that whole leadership is the area where I think we need to start here. Yeah, leadership, absolutely. And they need to model the appropriate mindset and demonstrate their actions with, you know, talk about this and then support their words with actions and and, Mm -hmm. and everything. But do you need to win over workforces to this? Or do do people just sort of assume that these sorts of things, do people... Is the general workforce's view that things are not actually that bad and nothing much needs to be done? Or um, do people actually get impatient at the slow pace of change? I think um, one of the other th- the things that sort of is more compelling for me when it comes to defining the business case is, you know, generally with all the organisations I've worked with over my 15 years in this field, you know, mm-hmm. it's the people within the organisation that are asking for change to happen in terms of their cultures, in right. terms of diversity and inclusion. So a lot of this drive, if you like, one of the key drivers for diversity and inclusion happening and almost persuading leadership teams where they might be reluctant, and that's not to say every leadership team is, but where there is some reluctance or there is a lack of understanding, then it's the people within the organisation that tend to drive, you know, this agenda going forward. So certainly that whole area in terms of, you know, how do we get buy-in, we do need to bring everybody along with us. So having those conversations and upskilling our people in this area so that they're not only responsible for their own behavior, but they're also alert to what's possibly not going right in the organization or things that are not in line with the values of the organization and Mm. are able to call those areas out Mm. and how we actually upskill our people to have better quality conversations in this area. How do we get our people to a place where they feel comfortable talking about diversity and inclusion matters? Because that's a key issue that Black Lives Matters has brought to the fore, which everybody will be familiar with, in that people struggle to talk about these areas. So when we talk about this needs to be woven into an organisation, it needs to be cultural. You can't achieve that cultural change unless you actually, you know, ensure that you're responding to everybody in the organisation and you're involving people in co-creating the diversity and inclusion programme. And you have the learning and development approaches that tackle some of these behavioral issues mm. Mm. that makes sense it really does make sense and, and as a as a as a white woman of a certain age i i realized over the last eight months that i've learned an awful lot um, about some of the ways these things are talked about that i hadn't actually appreciated mm. um, you know there's a there's a lot of education to be done about what people mean by certain things and um i'm thinking about when people talked, when people would say Black Lives Matter, and then other people would say, but surely all lives matter. <laughs> well, you can't really argue with that. But then you need to be educated to, un- to be able to explain why 
it's really not the same thing at all. Mm. And give people that understanding and that learning to actually be able to make make the point about the difference between those two phrases and why one of them is very powerful and one of them is actually very undermining, even though it was on, on the, at the surface of it, it is something you wouldn't necessarily want to argue, feel like you should argue with. Um, yeah. It's like being able to articulate something like white privilege. We, it's mm. very easy for people to, or certain groups to criticize that phrase. And, and when people haven't been educated to understand what that actually really means, mm. um, then people aren't necessarily able to stand up and be counted almost. I think it's absolutely, yeah, there's a lot of learning that all of us need to, to, to need have to in this, I think. Give our people that shared vocabulary and that mm. understanding in order for that attitudinal shift to happen where it needs to happen in the organization. And yes. something interesting you said, Joe, in terms of, you know, people sort of suggesting, you know, in some organizations and in society generally that things have moved on you know, and this isn't necessarily an issue, you know, that requires um, the time and investment today, then perhaps it needed to maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's also a key shift that we've seen, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion doesn't necessarily play out in some of those overt discriminatory behaviours anymore. People are more savvy to kind of not behave in that manner. But what we are now seeing is more of that sort of what we call modern racism, those subtle actions that signal to certain people that they don't belong. So, you know, just because you don't see it in the way that it was overt once upon a time doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Yes. And when we say things happen in the past, I always refer to this study here, which I think, again, just just, um, you know, proves the point that this still happens in today's day and age. This is research done by Oxford University only last year in 2019. And, you know, those various social experiments that we have, which actually look to prove, you know, a point. This mm -hmm. was um, talking about the whole issue around when you send out those similar CVs to organisations, they're similar in every aspect other than the name on the CV. Mm -hmm. And Oxford University did this research last year and English sounding names were shortlisted on 24% of occasions, whereas applicants with minority sounding names, the figure was just 15%. So again, just, you know, um, just you know shows, doesn't it? it shows mm. that it still exists and it's more in that subtle format mm. rather than that overt format. And mm -hmm. just because we don't see it in that overt format doesn't mean it still doesn't happen. Yes, yes. No, I totally get that. I get that. And, um, and of course, um, you know, the whole diversity and inclusion agenda is, is broader than race. It's, so it's around uh, social backgrounds. It's around circumstance. It's around being a single parent. It's around uh, what kind of school you went to. It, it's around a whole raft of things, isn't it? I mean, the value to any team or any organisation of having an, a diverse workforce, a diverse team working on a project mm. has, been, has been proven over and over again. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of the priority um, comes down to, to um, ethnicity simply because well, I was going to say why? Do, because there's probably more work to be done there, or is or is it more obvious? What, what would yeah, you say? I think, I think it's an area that hasn't been given uh, the attention it deserves, really, all along. It's been the difficult to do, the contentious area. Um, mm -hmm. 
people tend not to talk about it. So it's put in the difficult to do box and gender seems to be a bit easier to deal with. It's more relatable. Mm. So we have to prioritize that. But I think that siloed dimension on gender, you know, has been to the detriment on others. That's not to say that we shouldn't focus on the gender structural and systemic inequality, but we mm. do need to broaden this out. We do need yeah. to out to all of those other aspects of identity mm. and I think when we talk about cognitive diversity we do think about you know single parents and carers and all sorts of other experience you know people that bring in different experience and personalities absolutely right for us to do so but in that process what we mustn't forget is um, um you know the demographic de- uh, uh, protected characteristics so those demographic um aspects of identity those protected characteristics that are protected by the law we shouldn't look to water those down in the process so it's absolutely fine talking about cognitive diversity Mm. but what what I'm seeing is a little bit of a trend in in some places whereby we've kind of almost then discounted the experiences that those demographic aspects of identity bring Right. right and of course the danger of that is say the danger of that the implicit result of doing that is that far from that work having been done and sorted and everything's all right, um, a a significant part of this agenda gets left undone because people Mm. point to something a little bit more blurry um, that they can sort of say, oh, yes, we're doing all of that, but they've left left a certain amount of it untouched. Yeah. And Mm. and, and race is is difficult in that it is quite hard to sometimes talk about race because Mm. people fearful of saying the wrong thing you know mm. but we need to understand that those missteps are okay that's part of the learning process yeah. and then obviously we are dominated in senior management board level structures by a certain demographic um, and it's hard for those individuals to lead these conversations because they don't have the lived experience of that societal or organizational racial disparity mm-hmm. so that's that's part of the reason why this is difficult part of its terminology is always evolving so for example we know saying BAME is you know highly contentious at this moment in time you know people are talking about the individual distinct identities and rather than having this homogenized experience by being lumped into this you know uh, Uh acronym of BAME so that's quite difficult and then we have this whole issue about you know people feeling this threat of attack you know when we talk about Black Lives Matter or we talk about race issues then you know the um so if you like the people who are holding that power and that privilege there's almost that threat of attack you know fear of losing relevance or status or income whatever that might level of discomfort is Mm. so all of those areas you know all of those nuances do do lend themselves to this area being more complex to talk about but that is almost no excuse to take things forward we just need to have more upskilling in terms of you know that sort of learning and development in an organization and giving Mm -hmm. people that conversational intelligence as to how to have better quality conversations yeah and and I've got I've got less than a minute left we've got less than a minute left Belgium but just finishing with that point Mm. is that really where is that really where you would like to see the future focus coming that it's around learning uh, how to how to do that absolutely so I Mm. I refer to it as a conversational intelligence in Mm organizations so you know, giving people those skills to have that generative dialogue, de- deploying empathy and listening and communication skills, how those conversations are structured, those learning mindsets. So really, that's where I see the nub. Those are the areas, this area of having conversations is what's going to build those cultures of trust for organisations, whereby we can start to talk about everybody's lived experience and take everybody with us. This isn't excluding anybody. This is about taking everybody. We can't afford to leave anybody behind in this agenda. Excellent. 
Baljit, thank you so much. You've left us with some really, really important food for thought there at the, at the end. Um, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Baljit Kaur from Innate Consultancy. Um, and thank you for listening to Engage with Success Radio. We will see you at the same time next week. And don't forget, you can download or stream any of the great shows from our archive at any time. So thank you and goodbye. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.